Patriot. Um, then Obama actually put together a couple of investigative commissions to, to, to figure out what was going on. And they did, in fact, find... <laughs> there were these huge sweeps of, of Americans being spied on, uh, their information being um, tracked, held, um, and uh, and um, Obama kind of had to eat his words a little bit, um, but he didn't go so far as to apologize to Edward Snowden, um, but he did have to acknowledge that. In fact, yes, what Edward Snowden had released uh, information was, in fact, correct and accurate and was happening um, even, you know, kind of beyond uh, congressional oversight. So uh, Edward Snowden lives. He is in Russia. Uh, he would like to come home. But of course, in this climate, um, this political climate, uh, he cannot. So... Mm, Edward Snowden, what an interesting figure he is, um, and he's somebody that we still need to pay attention to. Um, it was a really, really cool event at the Curran Theater the other night uh, with Michael Krasny uh, hosting and interviewing um, Edward Snowden, big with his like giant head on the screen. You know, <laughs> it was an interesting event. Um, so I definitely want to talk about that because it's really important that we recognize the invasion, uh, the, the degree of which, uh, to which um, f agencies within the U.S. government is going, um, you know, in the name of security. And what's really interesting and telling is that all of this collection of data um, millions and millions of Americans' uh, information has failed, uh, despite original claims. Uh, some of these commissions that Obama uh, put together, um, they actually found that all that collection of information had failed to prevent a single terrorist attack. So, um, Edward Snowden's point was... Uh, you know, some people may have thought it's okay to trade liberty for security, but um, even the security part has failed. So, uh, welcome. Welcome to Women's Magazine. We're going to have a good day this, this Friday. Uh, we love truth-telling. We love the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Um, so along the lines of, uh, you know, not just the government wanting all, to collect all of your information without you knowing, um, an interesting story came out this week that I had to read a couple of different articles about because when I first read it, I was like, no way, that's not really happening. That's just some sort of, you know, fluff. I hate the, the term fake news, but I thought it was fake at first. Um, but then I went, I went looking because it was really interesting to me. So apparently Facebook is asking users to send the company naked photos and videos of themselves. Yeah, let me repeat that. Facebook is asking users to send the company naked photos and videos of themselves. Why? Well, so that it can block the images if they are later uploaded as revenge porn. <laughs> I got Roman in here. That was a great reaction. <laughs> 
Yeah. So apparently revenge porn is like a big thing that happens on social media. I thankfully have not had any personal experience with this, but apparently, um, every, uh, every month, I think they said, let me find, let me find that part. I want to say, <laughs> basically it's like you're in a relationship or you're dating with somebody and you send them naked pictures of yourself and then you break up and then that person decides I'm going to get back at you. So I'm going to post your naked pictures and social media. Apparently, um, the, the company sees 54,000 cases of this every month. Fuck. <laughs> Thank you. I, I like <laughs> I'm like a Paul Schaefer, but mostly swearing and just <laughs> muttering. Awesome. Car- carry on, please, Roman. That's uh, Roman Reimer from the uh, Weekly Review. Hey, everybody. Uh, <laughs> you should definitely tune in to Weekly Review here at Mutiny Radio, Fridays 12 to 2. <laughs> Paul Schaefer of Women's Magazine. Um, <laughs> only, only in expletives, please. Um, <laughs> so... Apparently, this is like a huge problem. I, I mean, fifty-four thousand cases a month of of people being being dicks and and posting dick pictures or or whatever. Um, no, but you know, getting back at someone by posting naked pictures of them. You know, so Facebook's solution: send us your nude photos and videos, um, and we will. <laughs> I'm just gonna read this. I can't. I can't even like say this with a straight face. All right, so. Facebook asking users to send the company naked photos and videos of themselves so that it can block images if they're later uploaded as revenge porn. A trial of the feature in Australia asks people who are worried about their intimate pictures being posted uh, by an ex-partner to pro- to provide the images to Facebook so that it knows to prevent them from being uploaded in the future. Uh-huh. The trial is due to spread to the UK, US, and Canada. Um, Facebook software would create a quote hash or a digital fingerprint of the photo so that it can be recognized next time it's uploaded and automatically blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, it hopes that preemptive action will prove better than deleting the images only after they're reported, by which time the damage may have already been done. Yeah. Facebook bans explicit images and revenge porn can result in a prison sentence of up to two years in the UK, but it's still a major problem on on the social network. Um, As we said, leaked documents revealed that the company sees 54,000 cases a month. (laughs) That's a lot of revenge. That is. (laughs) A lot of naked pictures. Um, (laughs) So here, okay, so we'll go on. Um, Julie Inman Grant, Australia's e-safety commissioner, said Facebook would not be permanently storing the images, Mm -hmm. but only the hashes, which are capable of blocking further attempts to upload pictures, but cannot be decoded to produce the images. The same hashing technology has been used for years to prevent the spread of child pornography and is also used by internet companies to share and block terrorist images. Facebook started blocking repeated instances of revenge porn earlier this year, I guess just just this year, um, using the hashing technique uh, to identify explicit images that had already been reported and prevent them from being reshared. Uh, but this trial <laughs> takes it one step further by attempting to thwart the uh, pictures from being uploaded in the first place. Mm. Um, 
<laughs> Roman. I, I do have a comment. Yes. Wasn't wasn't there something where like everything you put on Facebook or upload to Facebook, Facebook somehow owns? Uh, so you're what, right. Uh, yeah, they can like they, you sign away. You basically, I believe, you allow them to use any of your images that you upload, you know, as in theory that it's like, Oh, if we want to advertise or if Mm -hmm. we want to like, if we think your picture is great and we want to say, come join Facebook and look at this great picture. You're right, Roman. You're absolutely right. And that's another reason why we should be reading the fine print. When you download an app, when you sign up for a, a website, a social networking service, read the fucking fine print. That's a huge problem right now. For example, Netflix. Uh-huh. Netflix. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. Uh-oh is right. Because everybody wants to watch, you know, as many movies as you want for like eight bucks a month. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, when you initially sign up, uh, when I initially signed up, I read the fine print and I was like, okay, that's, you know, didn't sound like too bad. Then about a few months ago, they said, oh, we've, we've rewritten our privacy terms. So, you know, click here and agree or, you know, read them and then agree. So of course I read them, um, which a lot of people don't. And I, you know, I really encourage you to do so. You need to be able to make that choice. And so, um, and, and this is regardless if it's on your computer or even if it's on your phone, if you download the app for Netflix, yeah, you know, you, you're like, what are the agreements? What do I have to agree to? Well, we want access to your photos, your files, your contacts. It's like, wait a second. On Netflix? Right. This isn't, I mean, this is not some sort of like social sharing network right. where it's not like, you know, LinkedIn where I want, where maybe I want to see who in my address book is on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Like there's no connection there for if you're going to watch a movie. Yeah. Right. Or you're trying to watch a TV show. Why would Netflix need to have access to any of your personal information on your personal device? Mm -hmm. Um, but, and, and I've, you know, I have a smartphone and every time I think about downloading an app or somebody tells me about something, I'm like, Oh, okay, maybe I'll fucking use an app. And I look at it and it's like the Google play store and almost all of them now, if they're, you know, free ones or whatever, I haven't paid for any, um, almost all of them want access to all of that information. Hmm. And ergo, I don't use these services. Um, but it really pissed me off because I really wanted to watch movies. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like, and, and, and when I got that notice to, um, you know, agree, it was like basically agree or cancel your service. Ugh. So I, I canceled. Wow. So I, you know, if you guys have any VHS tapes and you want to send them to me, I still have a VCR. I, I actually do. Nice. Yeah. You know, let's go analog on this shit. Yeah. Um, or find some other way to do it because, um, yeah, you're giving it away, folks. You're mm. fucking giving it away. So this whole Facebook thing of, oh, well, we're not going to store the images really. It's just going to be like stored somewhere and it's going to be kind of encrypted. The idea is it would be able to scan a picture of anybody, you know, and it's, just, we're talking like naked pictures too. So not necessarily the face, oh. right? <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it's like, you're going to prevent any other naked pictures of this particular person from ever being uploaded onto Facebook. Mm. Okay. So that, that's scary in and of itself. Um, but also I was thinking, well, who's to say that, uh, 
you know the 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 photos <laughs> these naked photos you know if some if 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 you sent it to another person and then that person had that photo, then they could, in theory, upload it, right? Yeah. But what if the other person took a picture of you and you didn't, like, it wasn't your photo? Right. Like, how would you, you can't, like, upload their photo to prevent them from posting something. Yeah. So, this is really fucked up. I think it's really stupid. Um, and, you know, <laughs> don't send naked pictures of yourself, folks. I don't know. I mean, that would, to me, makes the most sense. Hey, maybe you want to, but you really have to think about where these pictures are going. It kind of makes me think about Willy Wonka and Mike TV, you know? It's like... You know, well, how do they make TV? Well, they take the, you know, this image gets, gets shot and then it goes up into the air and in millions of tiny pieces and then it shows up on your screen. You know, I mean, just as a very kind of, you know, juvenile <laughs> uh, example. Um, but it's like you're sending pictures in a world where all of your information can be hacked and accessed. Yeah. And in many cases, Ooh. you have already given permission to these companies to get access to these things. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sad, you know, we can't go back to the, the good old days where if you wanted to send a naked picture of yourself, you got a Polaroid, you put it in the mail. That's right. And you wait a few days. And if you're hopefully still seeing the person, <laughs> they'll get it. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, it's a weird world we're living in, everybody. Um, but <laughs> Blood Flower walked in. He's <laughs> he knows it's a weird world we're living in. Um, so, yeah, here we are in a world where uh, a whistleblower, Edward Snowden, a, you know, a, a dedicated American government worker um, decided to let the American public know that the government was spying on them with this huge overreach and it's totally unconstitutional. Um, and he can't come home, nope. uh, because he's being charged under the espionage act and for study uh, for two counts of something under the espionage act, act and also, um, like stealing government property. Um, but he's a whistleblower, which means he's a truth teller and he, uh, he's so, you know what? He's so articulate and he's so intelligent and he's so kind of level-headed, um, Anyhow, so we've got Edward Snowden, who's in exile, essentially. <laughs> he can't come home. He wants to come home. Let's bring him home someday under safety. Um, let's pardon him uh, for, for helping people know what was going on. And, um, and now, you know, Facebook wants you to upload naked pictures of yourself just so that, you know, that they can help you prevent your exes from posting revenge porn. Con congratulations, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I think we might be nearing the cusp of idiocracy. Oh, I, I, I bet you it can go far more worse and beyond what we even can imagine. <laughs> oh, man. And this is supposed to be an upbeat show today. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, I mean, we have to laugh at this, right? You have to. I mean, I, when I first read about the Facebook thing, I was like, yeah. give me a break. Yeah. This is like the onion, right? You know, it's like, it's, but it's not the onion. Yeah. It's Facebook. It's actually doing it. So, um, oh. yeah. Yeah, good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm. just, it's really good luck. Um, <laughs> this is what we need. Um, but what we need is we need, we need a lot of things. Um, 
I, I want to, I got a few more minutes. I want to talk a little bit more about Edward Snowden did. Um, and then I want to read you a poem that I wrote about it. Mm. So Michael Krasny was asking him like, well, where are you kind of politically, you know, like beforehand you were kind of more libertarian, like where are you politically now? And, mm. and Edward Snowden was very, very smart. And he, uh, you know, kind of avoided the question. Smart. But he was pointing to the fact that we have to get beyond partisanship. And, you know, there's people who are like red team, blue team, bad guys, good guys, blah, 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 blah. That the division and the divisiveness um, that that we experience uh, is not helping uh, the American public. Mm. Um, we need to be able to come together and discuss our values and look at what we what is all in, in public interest and overall interest and what we actually agree on instead of what we disagree on. Mm. Um, and I really appreciated that point, and he made it a couple of times. Also, there was an, a question from the audience uh, about, you know, what do you think is going to make the biggest difference, public policy or technology? Mm. And I thought that was a really good question, mm. and he answered it in a very interesting way. He said, well, you know what? It's going to be everything. You can't just rely on public policy. Um, public policy isn't going to change everything. Even if there was a huge, you know, grinchy change of heart in the White House tomorrow and yeah. everyone's heart grew three sizes that day, um, you're not going to have, like, public policy that's going to benefit everybody or, or, like, change everything overnight. Um, but you also have... I mean, you can send information. I mean, look at his, the information he sent, and the uh, you know, and things that can go around the world uh, in an instant um, that can change things and can change people and can bring information and all this stuff. And and so, uh, you know, kind of a comprehensive, like basically everybody has to be in it. Um, so I would like to personally thank Edward Snowden for being a brave, courageous person um, and a, a compatriot uh, for for truth telling and taking taking the personal risk. Um, and someone asked him, like, well, you know, uh, something about heroes. And I loved his answer. He's like, I don't believe in heroes. Mm. And you know what? I, I've, I've kind of historically not either. Um, yeah. And he's like, you know, when you believe in heroes, uh, that's another form of separation, mm. you know, to say that... Uh, these people did something that I can't do. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, everybody can do something. So, yeah. so just for saying that he's kind of a hero of mine. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, and I, I too, I'm kind of, I've kind of always been in the anti-hero camp. So, um, it was an interesting comment. And Edward Snowden, I found out, is like two years younger than me. Well, I'm like, I'm, yeah. like, I'm like, brother. Um, so uh, we're, we are contemporaries here. And uh, the world has a lot to, to, of work to do. So I'm glad that we're all here to do it. Here is a poem. <laughs> After all that. And I wrote this the day after I saw this uh, cool event at the current theater here. And it's called Your Truth is Out There. A little bit of blue skies and tears well up in Edward Snowden's eyes. Two standing O's from San Francisco. 
supporting our truth-telling compatriot who's been demonized by the very government he worked for and carefully exposed as violating privacy in a telecom complicit dragnet of data your phone records and three degrees of friends that was 2013 and it hasn't ended he blew the whistle and his own cover, discovering the unconstitutional overreach of an adolescent application of new technology wielded by novice agencies hungry for power, like an ambitious apprentice making a million sweeps while the masses rest and play, getting flooded by overflowing fountains of alleged fact-finding, found, in fact, to have never netted any plots against the people. Even the precarious deal of trading liberty for security has failed. Yet, we are still susceptible to the inside job of a virtual home invasion of all of your information. Mm. I'm Global Valley. You're listening to Women's Magazine, MutinyRadio.fm, San Francisco. Stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in to listen to Women's Magazine here this fine Friday, October 10th, 2017. I'm Global Val, and remember, just when your aspirations seem outrageous, like risking your life, career, and and nationality to expose the fact that your government is spying on almost every single American for no good reason, hey, inspiration is contagious. Peace. Thank you, and stay tuned. Coming up next, the Common Thread Collective Open Mic. It's Diamond Dave's birthday weekend. He's 80 years old, punk as fuck. (laughs) So come back, come down and join us. We're at the corner of 21st in Florida, right here in the Mission District of San Francisco. We have microphones. We've got uh, some some cool chairs and and, uh, places for you to hang out. And there's a piano if you care to uh, play the key a little bit or whatever you want to do music poetry activism art projects um you know free free flowing thought 
So stay tuned or come down and join us. And also on Saturday, that's tomorrow, at Adobe Bookstore over here on 24th Street from 6.30 to 9 p.m. We're going to have Diamond Dave's birthday party. Uh, Trio Cambio will be featuring at 7 o'clock. We're also going to have a cool local bluegrass band, the Beauty Operators, um, with our friend Jeremy Pollock, who's in that band, who used to have a show here as part of the League of Pissed Off Voters. Um, and you and anybody else you want to come and, and come be a part of it. Uh, you want to read a poem, you want to play a song, you want to pull a book off the shelf and read a paragraph, or you want to read something. Um, it will be a community event. Um, potluck, if you want to bring something to contribute for the food for the body, mind, and spirit, as Dave likes to say, feel free to do so. Otherwise, just bring yourself and your good vibes and your good wishes, and we're going to have a great rockedogenarian party for Diamond Dave. Peace. Be right back. And again, some music from a group, Emma's Revolution.
out Little mommy better go ahead We posted on the corner She's the black prima donna Run her fingers through a dredge Try to say you don't wanna spit Gay like a pro Okay, you don't know It's early in the game Gotta hustle like oh And shorty she retired Turn the bass up higher Get you live than the wire Set the place on fire Hey, 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 hey You can't stop it You better lie Get your fingers out my pockets Hey, hey, hey and yeah, I spit with a slur And I move with a herd It's absurd how I work And ay, and ay, ay, I know oh, you can't stop it You better why Get your fingers at my pockets ay, 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 And yeah, I spit with a slur And I move with a herd It's absurd how I get She's a little booty girl Saucy with a twist If you bossy do like this If you bossy do like this She's a little booty girl Saucy with a twist If you bossy do like this If you bossy do like this Hello, and welcome to Heterotopia. This is Roman, sitting in for DJ Azek. Today, it's Monday. Uh, getting a little bit of a late start, so please forgive me for that. We'll be getting some music on shortly. It's uh, December 11th, so stay tuned, and we'll be back in a minute. Well, you know you're getting paid I'm the black Kate Moss And you heard it from the source I don't got a license But this dude got a force So, oh, so we ride it Front seat driving It's hot in the summer But I ain't cool diving I like, I like, yeah I gotta test the waters Put some work in your hand African vibes are tight in the waist Trees by the case It's the hustle in my muscle And my finger in your face And we posted in the club A bottle full of bug Make a fifth to the and now we all fall in love, let your hands fall down Bossy do like this, if you saucy do like this If you bossy do like this, let your hands fall down Saucy with a twist, if you bossy do like this If you bossy do like this, she's a little booty girl Saucy with a twist, if you bossy do like this If you bossy do like this, she's a little booty girl Saucy with a twist, if you bossy do like this If you bossy do like this, she's a little booty girl Saucy with a twist Unless 
This next song is called Infer to Kill. Um, it's gonna be my next video, so happy. Life in my eyes, stay still 
and surrender to the fear of pain and madness. This is Roman. That music was by a amazing singer, beautifully, oh, beautiful singer named Shamir, and that's S-H-A-M-I-R. And I heard Shamir's music on The Current, which is a Minneapolis public radio station, and they play music all the time, and it's a really great station. You can access it online. I've heard a lot of new music that way that I would not have ordinarily heard. And this was from uh, the NPR Music Tiny Desk Concert. And if you also, Shimmer makes really great videos. So On the Regular is a good one. Um, there's also another one where he's uh, like, it's like people are puppets. It's it's cute. And there's another great song called Straight Boys, which I highly recommend as well. That's off Shimmer's most recent album. So today I'll be playing previously recorded podcasts. And the first one I'm going to get to is from It's Going Down. It's an anarchist news site. It's, I think, important to have some perspectives that we don't hear in the mainstream media and to hear about folks who are just from all over the world who are fighting the good fight. So they have an interview with a professor that sounded interesting to me, and I thought I would share that with you all folks. And it's uh, with Joshua Clover, who is a professor at uh, UC Davis. And... um, he, uh, Joshua, also has written a new book called "Riot Strike Riot: The Era of New Up the, the New Era of Uprisings." Excuse me. So I thought we'd play a little bit of this and then get to some other news after that. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll be back in a bit.
sort of is structured the same, right? So there's a massive economic collapse in the United States around 1973, and that sets off an intensified struggle over a diminishing pool of surplus, right? And in that struggle, the more surplus diminishes, the more elites have power over, over what's going what's gonna to come of it. And they really start fighting for it harder and harder uh, because there's less and less, right? So people start to get more and more um, aggressive about trying to seize uh, the largest percentage of it. That's the same thing that's happening here, right? We have this massive global collapse around 2007, 2008, which we really haven't recovered from. There's a decisively smaller social surplus, and you start to see greater competition uh, for that diminishing surplus. And you get in these periods great concentrations of wealth. So it's, you know, certain corporations, Google or Facebook or whoever, seem to be making extraordinary profits in this period, which is actually a period of greatly diminished uh, profitability. And similarly, elites, as you point out, uh, have, have been very effective at seizing a, a larger portion, but what's really of a shrinking pie. And I'm sort of interested in that double motion and what's going to come of it. So I think it's important to understand that mm -hmm. The thing we're seeing is, is not some sudden uh, overwhelming of greed that didn't exist before. Elites have always tried to obtain as much power and especially money power as they can. Uh, it's just the particular conditions that we're in now structure what that looks like and how it's going to ha happen. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that as we continue. Uh, but throughout the years, you've written and watched social movements and struggles pop off. Um, as you mentioned in the wake of the 2008-2007 recession, but now almost 10 years later in the broad strokes, uh, what do you think has changed in terms of both capitalism and how the state responds to contain revolt? I think we've seen an intensification of a kind of logic or strategy that was in motion for a while. You know, in the period of the big boom after World War II, the state, the elites, felt like they could spend a little bit bit of money and purchase the social peace, right? They were like, well, we don't want to give poor people anything, but let's give them a little in hopes that it will sort of pacify the population. Uh, and we saw things like uh, certain civil rights concessions, the Great Society, and so on. Uh, and that really stopped happening in the 70s on, on into the 80s. Uh, and that set the trajectory that we're in now. So instead of carrots, as I always like to put it, we've seen a lot more sticks on the part of containing social movements. They don't get bought off in the way they used to. They just get really brutalized. And so there's different versions of that. One, the intense militarization of crowd control that we've seen across the globe, but notably in the United States, right? But also hyper-incarceration in the black community and these various strategies that are all sticks, right? All direct domination and no carrots, no sort of indirect domination or getting people to buy in as it as it were and i think we're going to see more and more of that i realize that's not a cheerful thing to say but uh you know everyone should be looking around on amazon amazon for those good gas mask deals because we're gonna be seeing a lot more aggressive and direct repression of movements but we're also going to mm -hmm. see more and more movements i have no doubt about that as well do you feel like that there is, so to speak, uh, sort of a grand vision? I mean, because people have always, uh, in this context, written about how there's kind of like the, the techno 
uh, you know, authoritarian kind of future dreamed up by the big tech uh, groups of tech capital. And then we have this kind of weird thing that Bannon is trying to construct economic nationalism. I mean, do you feel like there's any sort of, um, I mean, do they even have like an end goal or, or is it just, as you said, just kind of trying to get as much as they can of an increasingly shrinking pie? Like, do they see the door closing and they're just trying to like get as much shit as they can before it does? Or is this part of a bigger strategy? Do you think? That's a really good question. Cause I think it gets at the complexity of the moment that, that we're in. I mean, it's always worth remembering that there's probably competing factors within the elites. Right. And I think you've just sort of named them pretty well. Right? On the one hand, there's the team that, that sort of understands the logic of what we used to call globalization, uh, and sort of expanding, you know, weakness of states, no borders to capital, endless global flow, right? Uh, and just wants to intensify that more and more. Like it, it seems to have worked for them for a while and like, let's do more of that. And then there's another team that sees that is running into real limits and thinks that uh, reinstituting uh, a, a state and nation-based sort of protectionist economy is the way to go and they're fighting it out and it's unclear to me who's winning you know hypothetically bannon was let go from the white house uh it does seem like for now the forces of staying the course of an ongoing uh borderless flow of capital uh seem to be sort of winning out the struggle the, the sort of effort for an economic nationalism or however you want to want to call it. it it seems like that's going to be hard to pull off and it doesn't quite have the support I think both sides, the sense in which there is a larger vision is both sides are dimly aware or perhaps quite specifically aware that the mode of liberal democratic capitalism that we've been in for a long time actually can't last forever. It's premised on adding more and more people to the labor market, getting more and more people to sort of be internalized into a larger system. And that's obviously not possible anymore. We're doing the opposite. We're expelling people from the system, uh, the, the system of, that manages people via the wage and things like that. And people know there has to be some other social management system that doesn't depend on extending the wage further and further. And that's where we start to see these real dystopian visions of like just direct sort of cyber techno management uh, that because people have to be disciplined in some way, their market dependency has to be preserved even if they have no wage. And that that's the horizon at which people in the elites, but probably also people not in the elites have to think like that's what's coming. What is it going to look like to try and uh, struggle uh, in the face of that trajectory. With that in mind, um, recently there seems to be a desire by some people to return to an Occupy-like movement or taking over public space, especially in the face of continued attacks by the Trump administration. Looking back on Occupy now, what do you think it can teach us in the present moment? Does a movement of the squares um, type trajectory make sense in today's world? Your questions are really ambitious. I, I, I wish I had like really good, like, mm, here's the answer, bing. I'm not, I'm not sure I do. Right. I, and as, as always, like I wanted to sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, like in the moment of, of Occupy, I don't know if I felt an optimism, but, but I did feel a kind of euphoria about the scope of, of 
efforts, pe- things people were trying, you know, and that's waned a lot. And it's now I think quite easy to be cynical and to see it as a small and already sort of distant event. Uh, on the one hand, I think it's also had some real uh, downstream effects. I remember there was a lot of people at the time, sort of classic communist types, um, hard leftists or whatever, who sort of poo-pooed Occupy because it was horizontal and maybe even anarchist and it didn't have a party and it didn't have organization. And I've watched those people one by one abandon that rhetoric and realize that even if Occupy can't happen again, even if there can't be a movement of the squares in the exact same way, that whatever is going to be a functional and possible uh, social movement is not going to involve the kinds of hierarchical, centrally organized forms that they were still holding on to in 2009 or 2011. So that's been a real change in terms of what people sort of are willing to understand or recognize. But for me, that's not about like what should happen, but what can happen. The thing I always say, and I want to say this as clearly and as often as possible, is people fight where they are. That's the one truth I've come to believe in my life, is people fight where they are. So rather than saying what people should do, which I never want to engage in, I just want to try and understand where people are. And clearly where people aren't is in those massified work scenes, like the factory in which 5,000 people are employed, right? That just, we see that less and less. And more and more we see people uh, distributed across a sort of broken market landscape. And so when we see gatherings in the squares, it's not so much because someone sat down and thought like that would be uh, a good strategy, the square, that's the place. It's, it's that, that sort of, you know, where people had been pushed by the restructurings of the, of the, of the world. And so I want to keep on being attendant to where people are being pushed by these restructurings. And in that regard, I don't think we've seen a major change between now and, you know, Occupy is only six years back. Change happens more slowly than that. Uh, so we're still in that situation where the vast number of the immiserated, and they're mostly not in the United States, right, but the vast number of the immiserated globally are in that space of being dependent on the market. So in the nebulous zone of the market, but not in the classic zone of conventional employment and production. So more and more we'll see struggles there. Some people are still work in, you know, in industry and in manufacture and they'll fight there. Uh, more and more like the, the, the fight I'm most interested in watching over the next five years is this may seem small, right? Is in d- delivery. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in the category of delivery. I mean like truckers, right? And, and people, and people who deliver food that, that tech bros order in their, from their lofts. Uh, and more and more we've seen interesting struggles there. There's a, sort of fascinating strike going on in the UK right now with this company called Deliveroo that's sort of like like Uber Uber Eats in the in the US it delivers food like Amazon is going to try and shift to having their own delivery service so they don't have to depend on the postal service or UPS or whatever and that's going to be once that's in place an amazing struggle so those are going to be some kind of things we're going to see more and more is is struggles in that sector but I think we will also see more and more of these things that look like riots to the cops that are people who've been pushed um, out of the job market and into the streets and are really too miserable to let life continue the way 
uh, continue on the way it's been going and are going to more and more start fighting back. Well, you mentioned people fighting where they're at. Uh, you're a professor in higher education. Um, and in the last year, much has been written in terms of the Trump administration's attack on public education as well as the threats of tuition increasing under the new tax plan. Uh, what does the landscape for students that are entering higher education look compared to how it did when the student occupation movement uh, broke out in 2009? Is it any different? Is it just worse? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, it's worse. I'm a, I'm a pessimist today. I hope, I hope this, <laughs> uh, which is to say that moment in 2009, uh, which we now think of as a student occupation movement, but we, that tends to forget how much it involved uh, staff and teachers and was pretty cross-sectional at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the energy of like faculty around that has collapsed entirely. And I can't speak highly of my colleagues for the most part in this regard. Um, they're really committed to institutional, um, and governmental remedy, you know, appealing to the, to the, to the state to fund education better and things like that. And the students, I don't know. Maybe it's opaque to me. I just, uh, in the middle of teaching a class on the black revolutionary tradition with about 65 students and they're great students. I really like them, but it's clear to them that revolutionary traditions that don't feel that distant to many people feel very distant to them. They can't imagine anyone taking up arms uh, in the present day to, to enter into, into struggle. And, I wish they could. You know, I wish that was more available. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. Maybe it is, but I wish it was more available as a thing people could imagine. Uh, and it feels very distant right now. Sure, what's going to happen in the university space, uh, as we say, uh, since, you know, more and more, it's not about how difficult things are for people who are there though they are, but about who can't get into that space, who's excluded from that space. Mm-hmm. And I really think this dynamic, not like ex- not exactly organized by, um, you know, working class or not, or like, or it's, but inclusion and exclusion at every level, like who's included in higher education, who's excluded from it, who's included in the job market, who's excluded for it, who's included in the benefits of whiteness, who's excluded from it. That dynamic of inclusion, exclusion is going to structure the rest of our lives. And it's worth thinking about very seriously. You brought, you brought up younger students and these are, uh, so-called, Generation Y or Generation Z, I think. Um, and that's very interesting what you're saying, that they cannot imagine a period in which people take up arms against the state. I mean, I've heard uh, other professors say that as well, but you're saying that previous students could at least look back on past struggles, whereas these students can't, maybe because they haven't gone through them yet? It's difficult, and I don't, I'm not very interested in sort of, you know, psychologizing them. It, uh-huh. it just feels pretty distant. You know, in this course, we started by talking about the history of the founding of ethnic studies departments in the United States, which is founded with two long strikes at San Francisco State and University of California, Berkeley strikes, massive building occupations. And um, the students were armed, right? There were guns on campus. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, um, the idea that, you know, and this, is, this was not to and capitalism. This was to demand ethnic studies programs. Uh, mm. and it, and they were successful. 
right? In in some ways, although it's always a dark success when it gets recuperated back into the institution. Uh, but the idea that 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 was the amount of force that was required to get a thing done. Uh, it, it's it's hard, I think, for people to get their minds around that right now. And I think that that is uh, something that I'm trying to be thoughtful about and why that does feel so out of reach. Maybe it's just historically distant. Um, when I ask the students about this, right, they're, they're interesting and thoughtful about this. And the main thing they say is the amount of sheer violence the state is ready to bring against you if you do anything like that is much higher now than it was millions of players are um and you know they might be right the state has been very effective at producing a sense of intense threat you know you ask these i remember 2009 right people were making quite minor demands like please don't raise my tuition 34 percent and the next thing you know you have you know cop helicopters and police dogs snarling and uh for like such a minor request uh, mm-hmm. And it, it is it is, you know, sort of clear that the willingness to respond with with extreme violent repression is very much hovering in the air at all times. So mm-hmm. I, I sort of get that. Um, I, but uh, of course, there was never a moment when fighting back was going to go unopposed. Uh, so okay. so I wonder how we get there. Well, that kind of brings us to our next question. Um, in the wake of the economic crisis of 2008, there was a lot of talk about how young workers, students, people in debt had, quote, no future. And this was kind of a, a slogan that was used at the time to describe uh, millennial life, I guess. But, um, you know, in today's world, when we factor in automation, climate change, gentrification, the inability of people to kind of reproduce themselves when you look at the current situation, um, what are you seeing? How do you think this should inform the way that people fight and organize um, just this kind of general immiseration, as you called it? Yeah. Well, again, I'm going to back away from the word should. I always get in trouble when I use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I, I mean, I think it will inform it. Which the, so the analysis in around the 2008 crisis that, that there was no future, that the massive investment of time and capacity and money into making yourself the kind of person who could have conventional success later, that that door was closing. That analysis strikes me as inarguable. It takes a while for the dramatic effects of that to be felt, which is to say, it's not like uh, the students in Greece understood that analysis better is that they were actually encountering what no future looked like, right? They're they living on a daily basis, uh, and the, thus the drama of their struggles uh, um, in the in the streets, you know, in 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 Greece since since two thousand eight. Uh, and the I think contemporary, you know, young young people. I don't really want to speak for them. They probably know more about this than I do. They confront it in a way more directly than I do. Uh, they get it. I think we're in a period of people trying to adjust their sense of what kind of future is promised to them and recognizing that it looks more like survival than success uh, and, you know, conventional bourgeois success. And you can try and attune yourself to that new situation mentally all you want. At some point, the misery of daily life is going to move you. And that's always the question for me is when do we get to that moment? You know, the thing I thought about Occupy in the end was 
that there were two social fractions involved in it. And one was people who were already excluded, already immiserated, already kicked out of the job market, already treated as waste by society. And then there were people who were very much, you know, in society, but experiencing downward mobility for the first time and experiencing that foreclosure of a future. And these are different social fractions. And one of the remarkable things about Occupy is that those two groupings were able to move together for a while. It was really extraordinary. And the question is, can that happen again and be more sustained? And I think the answer is that happens when that second group, the people who are uh, um, still within the logic of civil society, but downwardly mobile, when they encounter the bite of that even more intensely, it's going to be more available to them to move with, act in solidarity with those who are truly excluded. Um, and that difference right now articulates itself in lots of different ways, notably along the lines of race. Uh, but um, we're still waiting for that moment when the daily misery of life motivates people to take risks next year that they couldn't imagine last year. Well, that's a really good point um, and also a good uh, analysis of Occupy, and I would definitely agree with that uh, breakdown. Well, let's turn now to to the book. You wrote a book about riots and strikes. What, um, what was my title? You, you can call it whatever you want. There was not the title I gave the book, but that's how it turned out. <laughs> Okay. What was the original title? Uh, originally, I just given this old-fashioned title, just of Riot, like a book, uh-huh. a, a book about Riot. But the publisher, uh-huh. the publisher hated that, and they made me call it Riot Strike Riot. And we had a big fight, and I lost the fight. I always lose fights. I don't. I can't win. So, um, well, well, let's so talk about that. And, right. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting, though. Um, well, let's talk about the book. I mean, why write a book about? Uh, riots and strikes and, and how they affect the economy in today's world. What what drove you to write that and why do you think it's important? Mm. Well, a lot of things. I, I, I want to try not to, you know, as a scholar, there's often this denying of the personal and I don't want to do that. Um, I've been part of both strikes and riots in my life. I was a very zealous labor organizer when I was young. I had my first, did my first work trying to start a union when I was 19. Um, and I've also, uh, I don't, I don't know how to put this in a properly legal context. I've been near riots in my life, uh, and seen them unfold. And I find both these phenomena very interesting. Mm. And there's a lot of studies of them historically that are largely sort of sociological, um, what is the experience of people who engage in these things, who are drawn into these things? Um, what is their daily life like in these times and leading up to these times? And those are many of them very important books. And I wanted to write a slightly different kind of book, which tried to provide an explanation for what's in some ways a very simple fact, which is that for a couple centuries, the riot was sort of the orienting form of social contest in the repertoire of social contest as one famous historian calls it and then it gets replaced by the strike in much of the world not all of it uh for again a couple centuries maybe a century and a half and then the strike really starts to decline as we've seen in our lifetimes and the riot starts to return both actual riots but also as a fascination for individuals politicians movies you know whatever and i wanted to be able to offer 
an explanation of why that happens rather than just noticing it. Um, so it's more like a, a re-narration of, of the history of struggle within a certain framework. And that um, seemed important, right, for explaining why the phase we're in, which is a phase, I think, led by riots, is going to continue. Again, there's no should there. I'm not saying people should riot. I'm not saying people should strike. I don't see why they wouldn't, but that's me. Uh, but um, I'm just saying they will. Like, here's what's going to happen, and here's why, um, without any judgment on it. And that was the goal, that was the goal of the book. And it, it rubbed a bunch of people the wrong way, but um, I guess that was maybe inevitable. Yeah, that's interesting. You bring that up. I mean, in academia, do you do you get uh, pushback from other people? Because I mean, these are very uh, you know quintessential proletarian actions. You know, from from the ground up, or are some people just miffed that you would even kind of valorize that or, or bring it up? That certainly happens, especially if people haven't read the book and they assume the book is it's a book of advocacy, and they're sort of like, <laughs> "Why are you advocating riots?" There, and, and you know. People have different reasons why they don't like riots. Some people find riots um, uh, intolerably bad behavior, and some people have a more paternalistic, oh, I can understand why people would do it, but it's a bad strategy, and so on. Various stances, right? But almost almost no one in the, the teaching level of academia uh, is sort of just thinks riots are a fundamental, act, necessary political activity. Uh, and so there's a certain amount of pushback around that if they think it's a book of advocacy. When people read the book, they tend to sort of be a little bit more thoughtful about what the book is trying to puzzle out, which is right. a why, not a, not a um, you know, it's, it's an is, not a, not a should. Um, uh, and, uh, but also, not just in academia, but I think in general, in whatever my um, sort of automatic social milieu is, which is middle class leftists, I don't really identify with that, right? But it's you end up circulating in that category all the time if you're a liberal arts professor. Uh, and the preference in that group is aggressively for strikes as a strategy that really identifies with labor organizing and it's, and why it's good and the virtues of labor. And I'm not really opposed to any of those, those things, although I'm certainly opposed to the ways people talk about them. And I'm certainly opposed to the way unions administer them. Um, but the preference for the strike is incredibly strong among those people Interestingly, they themselves generally don't belong to unions, right? So it's very weak unionization among university faculty. Uh, so they generally don't belong to unions, and yet they're very sort of uh, pro-strike in the abstract, at least, and consequently very hostile to political action that's not labor-based. And that's definitely been a source of tension, uh, to, to be sure. Um, well, that kind of brings us actually to our next question is in chapter eight, you write, quote, the weakness of the static model of, quote, the working class is not simply in some abstract failure to track capital's restructurings, but in the practical inintention to changes in the subject of struggle. Um, can you explain what you mean by this and why you think this is so? I mean, we've kind of uh, brushed on this topic, but just kind of the um, just the, the language around, quote, the working class or who works and who doesn't, um, as, as you've mentioned several times in this interview, that, that 
uh, it's it the economy has changed much. Yeah, that's that's for me a core question, maybe even the core question. So we have it, and it's it seems to be a language question, and it's not a language question. Uh, we have these two different terms: the working class and the proletariat. They get used largely interchangeably. There's good reason for that. Some of our greatest thinkers of those categories use them interchangeably, and so why shouldn't we? Uh, but they're quite different. What matters is they're becoming more and more different, and people are often not attentive to that. So the working class, this is a category people associate with, with Karl Marx and, and that tradition. It's not a term from Marx. It's a term developed by factory inspectors. It's a fundamentally sociological term. Um, and it you know, refers to people who do a certain kind of recognizable, identifiable labor, uh, physical labor, um, comes from the 19th century. And we've tried to adapt and modify that over the course of the last 150, 200 years to sort of keep it functional. We understand that work has changed in various ways. People are doing more service work and things like that. But we're still trying to hold on to that category, right? People who um, who go to work, they get a wage, they come home, they support some larger grouping, probably a family, using that wage and and, and so on. Now, at the same time, we have this other problem, which is that as the economy has developed, both in the sort of uh, early industrializing West and globally in the last couple hundred years, uh, the, and we, we've touched on this earlier, right? The capacity to internalize new labor inputs, that's a fancy way of putting it, right? But that just means the ability to add workers. Uh, it grew for a while because it was so profitable to make cars in 1910, 1920, that even though automation was coming in, the, the, the second industrial revolution and the assembly line, it was still so profitable that the sector grew and grew and add workers and add workers and add workers. But at some point that stops being the case. And I don't mean to dodge it by saying at some point, if people want to get into the real nitty gritty details, I can go there with them, but I'm not sure it's appropriate now. Uh, but a moment comes when the demand for cars or whatever in relation to how efficient we are at producing them, the level of productivity is such that there's no need to add workers. You just have more and more productive machine-based processes and you can crank out all those cars. You don't need those. And then you start shedding workers. So it's not just cars, right? It's the entire economy. The entire economy is shedding workers. It's been shedding workers for a while. So now you have this whole category of people that lots of different terms get used. Surplus population is probably the most common these days. Um, surplus here doesn't mean um, surplus to our sense of the human. It means surplus to capital's needs to produce surplus value. And that population grows and grows. They're just not included under that framework working class, right? So what are the politics of that group of people? And that's the book, right? The book is about the politics of that group of people and how that group of people is not going to strike, not because they think it's, uh, you know, not because they think that union hierarchies are screwed, man, but because they don't work. They don't have a kind of job and a wage that allows them to strike. They're going to do something else. And that's what the riot is, right? So in understanding not just the riot strike dynamic, which is obviously the thing I try and think about, but many, many different political dynamics, uh, 
it's of the first importance to keep our eyes on the widening gap between the working class and the proletariat, which includes all of those people who are proletarianized, who uh, wake up in the morning and have to figure out how to stay alive and don't have, you know, a bunch of stuff they own to rely on. They, too, are the proletariat. And this is the growing portion of the proletariat. So when we think about the politics of the present, the next 10 years, the next 50 years, the next 100 years, that's who I think it's vital to think about. Yeah, just real quick, uh, one interjection. There's a there's a quote from the book, Poor People's Movements, Why They Succeed and How They Fail, that I've always really liked. Uh, but it says in there, I'm pulling it up now, but, quote, indeed, some of the poor are sometimes so isolated from significant industrial participation that the... Oh, sorry, institutional participation that the only contribution they can withhold is that of acquiescence to civil life. They can riot. Yeah. Meaning the only negative sanction, the only thing they can withhold is the ability to stay passive. So that's exactly um, that's exactly right. And I think we've seen since that book was written, which is a really useful book, mm-hmm. we've seen a, an ongoing explosion of that category of people that are being discussed there. That's an interesting book too, because at the end they're just kind of like, yeah, this shit sucks, but you know, whatever, it's better than nothing. What are you going to do? They kind of have a very pessimistic uh, view of just the human condition, I think, but uh, such as being a liberal, I guess. Well, I can't, I can't really look out at the world and try and take anyone's pessimism from them. It's, it seems like a, (laughs) seems like a reasonable response, but there's things you can like pessimism doesn't have to mean pacifism that's the thing i always want to remind myself right yeah i would agree with that um so going back to chapter eight um quote two examples chapter eight yeah in chapter eight you write quote two examples will be particularly suggestive in considering the current situation of riot prime in the overdeveloped world two landscapes then the square and the street just as the port and the factory were the space of riot and strike respectively these are the natural homes of Riot Prime. Do you see these? And we've kind of talked about these two landscapes, you know, the, the square being kind of like where Occupy kicked off and the street being uh, where riots kick off. Do you see these two landscapes um, as kind of like the, the terrains that exist now in terms of how people could possibly act? And are there new ones to be discovered? And if so, what could they be potentially? Now you're asking for an ambitious forecast. <laughs> I don't know if there's new landscapes. I mean... The lessons of 2014, um, not new then and not unseen since then, but the lesson of 2014, right, is that it's all about the freeway, which is a version of the street. Um, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the late modern street. I still am fascinated by there's some portion of maybe Highway 70 that goes through Indiana that's referred to as the main street of the Midwest, um, and, you know, it's just a big freeway. And I think there's something actually beautiful about that. It's, it's amazing how, uh, you know, these, these government functionaries by accident have these moments of vision. Uh, um, and, you know, I think we've seen the logic of the freeway as a, as a place of political action. And I think we'll see more of that, not just freeways, but in general, that thing, you know, people like to refer to it as blocking circulation which I think simplifies matters a little bit. I think that um, the structure of global capital and its logistics networks is pretty resilient, as they say. And so even if we were to block 30 freeways, there's a lot of routing around. But more and more, as I said, we're likely to see strikes in the delivery sector. We're likely to see riots or, you know, however we want to name 
massive public gatherings that are not about work. Um, in places like the freeway, the airport, um, places where circulation of bodies and of goods uh, happens swiftly and constantly and suffers from being disrupted. So, you know, that, that I think is an easy prediction. I don't think I'm the only one to make it, but we can pretty much guarantee that there will be a certain amount of direct politics around that kind of uh, human and commodity flow in the next decade. Yeah, and I mean, just with what's happened um, in the past couple of weeks with the blockage of the train in um, Olympia definitely shows that to be true. Yeah. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned 2014 and I'm sure that you're alluding to the, not only what happened in Ferguson, but also just the response across the U S yeah. can you just talk about why that's important as an example? Well, probably a couple of different ways. Um, the, that year had this, this double structure that's actually not uncommon, which is, so first there's an event where the cops kill a, a black person um, and, um, un, unjustly, uh, and there are local riots that follow that immediately. And then there is the moment that happens weeks, months later, in which you discover that this murder is going to be allowed to continue with impunity, right? There's going to be no punishment for the cops. And then you tend to get, if, if anything, you tend to get widespread rioting. And we saw, you know, in what I refer to as Ferguson two, when the, uh, the cop, uh, Darren Wilson, uh, was, um, was not indicted, uh, in November of 2014, we saw, uh, a national wave of freeway occupations uh, um, that was pretty extraordinary. So both Ferguson one, which is the events in Ferguson in August, uh, and then Ferguson two were historically extraordinary. The first one was by some measures the longest ride in U.S. history. It went on and on. We saw for the first time in a long time, to, to harken back to our earlier discussion of what can and can't be imagined these days, we saw rioters shooting back at cops. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so the length and the intensity of that was uh, probably historically unprecedented. And then the breadth of Ferguson 2 across the country, we've seen episodes like that, uh, certainly after the verdicts in Los Angeles, um, in 1992, we saw a national wave of riots, 67 and 68, massive national riots, all of them premised around uh, racial struggle and, and direct violence against black people. Uh, and so Ferguson, too, is not unprecedented in that sense, but that certainty that the right thing to do was to block the freeway, that's interesting, right? That That is, on the one hand, a real historical throwback to the riots of the 17th and 18th centuries that consistently involved blocking roads um, to stop the transport of goods when people were starving. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, it's a throwback, but on the other hand, other hand it's an image of the future, um, of the way that people are going to have to fight if they want to make the world stop. And that 
desire to make the world stop is not going to be repressed. Well, that kind of brings us to our next question. And um, I wanted to talk about what's happened under Trump the last year. And I don't want to kind of segment, you know, everything off into just, you know, who's who's in power. But I think it is important to look back at the last year. My question was that I, I would like to talk about um, riots and 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 that type of activity under Trump. And uh, I think what's interesting about this year is that we saw a month of sustained and continue, you know, it continues to, it wasn't just a month. It's still going on. But in St. Louis, um, you know, we saw a month of riotous and just rowdy protest activity. And what's interesting, I think a big question that comes out of this is why did it not spread um, in that instance, but in the wake of Heather Heyer being murdered in Charlottesville, we saw just an explosion of activity, you know, weeks and weeks of people taking to the streets, physically tearing down statues, uh, clashing with the alt-right. Um, I'm just kind of curious, looking back at the past year, just what are your thoughts on it? Well, the question of why does it spread sometimes and not other times, it's a greatly studied question. I don't think anyone has particularly good answers to it. Um, it, probably we want to think about, you know, memes or something like that, which is to say the ways in which things need a framework in which to spread. So that, like, we can think of pulling down statues as a kind of meme, right? I'm not sure I love the language of memes, but that just might be because I'm old. Uh, but the, the logic of pulling down statues was really clear to people. It's like, oh, what would a response look like? Oh, it's a specific practical action. Let's go do that. Where's a statue? Uh, and that's great, right? That's a really useful framework that people can have to respond. And the question of what people do when they don't have that framework and it's more freestyle uh, is a, a greater puzzle. And so, you know, do you get like someone occupies a freeway and people are like, that's a thing to do, occupy a freeway. So one might think that the job of the insurrectionary left or non-left or whatever it is, is to provide kinds of frameworks in which lots of people who maybe don't have a lot of experience entering into struggle with the state, struggle with capital, can plug in, as we say. And, you know, there's a specific thing you can do because that, that, that statue framework was really useful. Uh, it seemed to coalesce for people a, a way to express an outrage and a dissatisfaction over racial domination. But like, racial domination is so abstract for, for in, in the broadest sense and for white people who love to either disavow it or don't have to encounter it on a daily basis. Right? It's suddenly there's like there's an object in which it's condensed. There's a statue and you can do a thing. So imagining what political action would be and what kind of frameworks people who who don't already know what they want to do can 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 have a way to act seems like an important thing to do uh and that's one of the ways i think about the last year but you know also so like the, the people in st louis they go hard and i just want to say like respect to the people of st louis um, they've, they've gone as hard as anyone the last couple of years. And I just have so much admiration and we always want to ask like, why St. Louis? Why, why not somewhere else? And I'm not the expert of that. Like I want, um, you know, my, my friends 
from St. Louis, from that scene to tell me what it is about those conditions that have made it possible for those people to go so hard for so long with such commitment because we want more of that and we want to understand what the conditions of possibility are for that. So I look forward to your next podcast with nothing but people from St. Louis because <laughs> we, right. you know, we need to know. Well, in the last chapter you write, quote, the coming communes will develop uh, where both production and circulation struggles have exhausted themselves. The coming communes are likely to emerge first, not in walled cities or in communities of retreat, but in open cities where uh, were excluded from the formal economy and left adrift in circulation now stand watch over the failure of the market to provide their needs. And I, I, to me, that seems, you know, very hopeful in many ways. And I think kind of gets to some of what we've been talking about, but just like, how do we take these kind of forms of, of fighting and struggle and, and create a different kind of way of life? But can you tell us a little more about how you think that some of these things that you're talking about in this passage uh, might play out? Well, I can, but I don't think it'll be the answer you want, which is a sort <laughs> sure. of concrete, like first you do this, then you do this. The thing I'm trying to think about in that moment is uh, maybe a little counterintuitive. So when I say commune, I really don't mean what the common associations of that. I don't especially mean the Paris commune of 1871, although that seems amazing. Um nor do I mean other historical communes. There's a really interesting commune in Mexico, Morelos, around 1910-11, uh, the Shanghai commune, many other examples, right? I don't really mean that. And nor do I mean this thing I associate with my parents' generation of sort of back-to-the-land movements in the 70s right. where a bunch of people who could move to a cheap place in upstate New York and start growing their own zucchini. Uh, like, I don't mean either of those things. I mean a specific kind of struggle, which is neither a riot or a strike. So if I can lay out the, the scheme briefly. So riots are struggles in circulation. They're for people who are market dependent, but not necessarily wage dependent. So that's, by definition, the sphere of circulation. Um, and they're struggling in that area. Strikes are for people in are struggles in the sphere of production. So they are wage dependent and can struggle there. Seems to describe all of capitalism, right? Production, circulation. But there's this whole third sphere we forget all the time, which is the sphere of reproduction, where you and I and everyone else who's not a capitalist has to figure out how to stay alive each day and keep their family alive. So sexual reproduction is the obvious example, but also you know, buying food and having shelter and caring for each other and all that. Uh, and struggles that launch themselves from that sphere are what I'm calling the commune. The limit of the strike is that it's inclined to ask for more and better work, like labor, wages, work conditions. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up affirming the wage relation. Certainly, certainly in this day and age, doesn't have a revolutionary horizon to speak of. And the limit of the riot is it ends up sort of affirming the the market, right? Even if even if it gets down to looting, which is the the clearest, truest, and best part of the riot, right? 
still is affirming this idea that there's stores and they have commodities and we're not going to pay this time, but it still sort of affirms that existence. So the question for me is, what kind of struggle doesn't affirm either the wage or the market? And my, th that kind of struggle, I named the commune, right? So a commune is just a kind of struggle that's not demanding a wage and it's not demanding better access to consumer goods. It's not fighting for either of those things, but it's fighting to figure out how to reproduce itself socially without reference to those things. But, huge but, that's not going to be allowed to happen peacefully, right? This is where the zucchini farmer dream collapses. You get, right. you get a serious population, a thousand, ten thousand, a million people, saying we're not going to work for a wage and we're not going to buy in the market, we're going to start caring for ourselves um, and, and producing our own means of reproduction, the state's going to come for you. Capital's going to come for you. And there's going to be a direct conflict. The direct antagonism, it's going to be violent. Um, it won't start violent, right? The first thing will happen then is the state will massively increase taxes so as to force those people to have to work for a wage to pay taxes, right? And, mm -hmm. But it'll move on from there. Uh, and so I want to be able to think about that category, which is the category of struggling from the space of social reproduction, entirely aware that that's going to mean direct conflict with, with capital in the state. And that is the that is the horizon of revolutionary politics for me now the particulars of what it looks like i don't know um road warrior game of thrones um, <laughs> walking dead like all these shows are trying to figure it out right this is the question in this apocalyptic scene where the organizing forces of our world state and capital um, can no longer provide the good life for people, what does the attempt to survive look like? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we need to have a better imagination than The Walking Dead, which is a Nietzschean version of that question. And we need to have a better answer. Uh, and that's why we're here, right? It's not because we know the answer, but because we're committed to getting to that answer. Right, exactly. Well, just... To end us off here, you know, one last question. This is something we've asked uh, several people on the show, but something that I find interesting. But um, in this period of Trump, uh, people fighting the far right, uh, there's a term that's being thrown around a lot, left unity. I'm just curious about what you yourself think about this term. Is it a good or, quote, bad thing or <laughs> agree with the the, the, um, the idea of it? Or I'm just curious your thoughts. I'm uh I guess I would want to hold on to the possibility it could mean multiple things. Historically, left unity, unity has been, I think, incredibly destructive. And if what people mean by left unity is the kind of popular frontism that's been tried um, over the course of the 20th century, I would caution against aggressively as I could. I think that that has not worked out for um, revolutionary leftists, whether they be communists or anarchists. and they they get used to uh, to provide a kind of threat as the armed wing of 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 left liberalism uh, and destroyed when the moment comes and it's it, it, I think it would be irresponsible to suggest to people with a revolutionary horizon that they should enter into that 
uh, cheerfully or even skeptically. If there's a way to articulate a left unity which agrees as the first point of unity, no more voting, no more elections, no more feeding into liberalism, I'm open to it. I think people have to move forward together, uh, but it's going to be a struggle to redefine what the points of unity are, and people have to be very clear about what they cannot be. Uh, and the the ways it's been formulated in the last century, I think we have to be more than skeptical about. Uh, the other thing I'll say is there's unity as policy and there's unity that happens uh, uh, you know, organically or, or somewhat um, out of necessity rather than rather than out of a bunch of people getting together at some national hoedown and making a bunch of agreements. Uh, and I think we're going to start to see more and more, you know, my, my description of Occupy, like that's a kind of left unity, right? That moment in which a, a global middle class and an excluded lumpen proletariat can move together and see themselves as having the same fight, even if they're struggling to communicate. That, uh-huh. that's, a, that's a kind of left unity, and I'm happy to see more and more of that developing, and it seems to me inevitable that it will develop. We just need to be very clear about what left unity can't be before we understand what it could be. So you brought up kind of like establishing like kind of like a new line uh, in the sand, which I think is great, you know, against electoralism, that I, I feel like, uh, you know, indigenous militants, anarchists, autonomous communists, uh, you know, everybody kind of like on that side can kind of agree with, but uh, we're seeing also in the street, you know, kind of a coming together of particularly like groups like DSA and, and anarchists and stuff like that, which in, in many instances has been uh, great because, you know, people have moved together and, you know, there's been numbers like just the other day in Washington, DC, Richard Spencer tried to do a demo and, you know, was out organized by people like with less than 24 hours and that included both anarchists and, DSA, but I mean, do you see that tension kind of coming to the fore, uh, not only uh, next year when there's going to be elections, but also just as DSA comes into that internal contradiction of some people wanting to become the left wing of the Democrats and some people wanting to fight capitalism? I've been saying this for a while. I mean, there's going to be a reckoning coming for DSA. It may have already started, but it's going to confront the organization more directly when they have to take an official position on their stance on the 2020 elections. Uh, and you know, the Democrats will this time provide a candidate who's from the Bernie wing. It'll be Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, um, some, someone like this. And, um, and the DSA is going to have a, a, a national meeting and they're going to have to figure out their relation to, uh, Democratic Party electoralism. My guess is that they will decide as an organization to take part in the election with the usual disavowals and we're so skeptical and so on and so forth. My guess is also this will cause a split in the DSA, whether it's official or not, but it may well be official, where people who aren't interested in electoralism as a strategy break from the DSA and we see their first sectarian split. Uh, and that's going to be an interesting moment to see what happens of the, with the people who split off and what direction they go and what kind of political tendencies can be organized at that moment with uh, people who are already to the left of the DSA and then DSA folks 
who want to exit to the left, as we say. Uh, yeah. And what comes of that moment, I think, will be pretty interesting. We've already, there's already sort of a kerfuffle in this moment. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too far into DSA inside baseball, but there's a kerfuffle in this moment where an important figure, part of the National Committee, R.L. Stevens, suggested recently, this was maybe a couple of weeks ago, that he thought electoralism might not be a good strategy. Uh, <laughs> wow. He, that, that, that he thought um, the the orienting program right now, which is Medicare for all, that's the, that's the, the DSA has declared that's their main mm-hmm. sort of policy goal, um, that they may be able to win that with electoralism, but that the losses of committing to electoralism may be greater than that. And so it may make sense to not pursue an electoral uh, path, even though that might mean sacrificing an immediate struggle for Medicare for all. And People went batshit. Um, people really got angry at RL, and RL is African American, and mm-hmm. some racist shit was said. And what's interesting, right, is that this split, on the one hand, it looks like electoralism, non electoralism, but on the other, it also looks like a racialized split. And this makes complete sense. This makes complete sense because uh, if you're from a community, a population, a group that has a greater, more immediate experience of immiseration, your skepticism about electoral strategy um, could could well be stronger. Uh, And so it's really interesting that this political question is also articulating itself around contemporary racial politics. It makes complete sense, and I think it adds to our sense of what the kinds of struggles and debates we'll be seeing within the DSA in the next year or two are going to look like. And I I think we're all curious to see what direction it takes. That's a great answer. Well, in closing, anything else you want to plug? Um, I encourage people to check out AK Press, uh, check out the work of Commune Editions and also the book Riot, Strike, Strike, Riot. Um, But anything else you want to plug or how people can check out your work or follow what you've published so far? Um, no, I want to plug IGD. IGD's been doing nothing but the the um, nothing but Satan's work, and I mean that in the best. <laughs> 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 nothing, nothing uh, but the best, and it's become an incredibly important resource for people uh, in the era of Trump. And uh, we're all grateful. And so I just want to plug y'all. So once again, this was an interview with Joshua Clover, and this was posted on It's Going Down, and you can find it at itsgoingdown.org. And the title is Make the World Stop, Joshua Clover on Capital and Riots Yet to Bloom. And this was posted on December 4th. If you'd like to hear it again or hear it in full, you can check that out at itsgoingdown.org. And there's also lots of other articles there as well. We're going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with some more news uh, in a bit. So stay tuned. I had like the melody and everything like already in my head, but I wanted to like get it down on paper and everything. So I took out my handy dandy Taylor Swift notebook <laughs> and I wrote the lyrics and then I was getting down the melody after I bought this like like toy handheld um like little piano thing and I was like banging that out like literally in the fitting room <laughs> writing the song. I was like mm-hmm. And then my manager walked past me and was like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I wrote the song in the fitting room. 
Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> So you know, I come with the tip, with the blow, with the boom And if you're in my way, there's nothing but doom I ain't got no time 
ever since I was eight, I was attached to the mic. Wanted a guitar before I wanted a bike. Had an Apple phone, talking to Price. Never seen a song, cause I'm up all night. Really, really? Really, really? You wanna talk shit, but you know that I am early. Early to the fullest. You can call me cancer, no more talk the cause I'm the only answer. Ain't got no wallet, only use your advance. You know my trick is right, cause it doesn't make a dance. You wanna get at me, but you don't stand a chance. And if you wanna fuck a yes, you can get your chance. Hey, just get the bird, more like an eagle. This is my movie, stay tuned for the sequel. Seems so wrong, seems so illegal. Got this in the back like a foul ball free throw. Yep, yep, you know that I go. This is me on the regular, so you know. Sexual abuse, fuck rapists. Eternally, and they take it out. 
on people like me all the time. They say I'm grateful for being true, but act like it's not something they can do. But they're clinging to a false sense of pride. Shamir with Straight Boy off Shamir's most recent album, Revelations, which came out on November 3rd, 2017, and you can find that at Father Daughter Records. Lots of great music there. <sighs> okay, coming up next is, there's a clip from uh, The Intercept, and we'll see what we can play here. <sighs> Just taking a deep breath, because fascism and folks in positions of power who are causing harm to citizens that's the best way i can introduce this story uh they're taking everybody videos show texas troopers ripping apart immigrant families during traffic stops so i'll play the video here and this is again from the intercepts and i will read what i'm able to this guy is so beautiful this is in brownsville texas got this that goes into pinkish purple and there's a full moon. I hate seeing these places being torn up by this horrible, cruel 
immigration enforcement. Hello. Hi. Take that patrol. There's a sign here at the fixed tail light on the right oh, side. Oh, really? Yes. When I first started my job, I was hearing from a lot of people in the community about uh, being stopped Debbie for just trivial traffic infractions and then um, being turned over. Who's an investigative journalist with the ACLU in Texas? I believe in. Uh, by the Department of Public Safety, which is the state troopers being turned Houston. over to the Border Patrol. Is that your baby in the back? Yes. Is it a boy or girl? She's a girl. She's Five months. Is he the dad? Yeah. Does he have a visa? Texas actually has a really good open records law, and so when I heard these stories, I thought to myself, I should just take down people's names and other information they give me, and I should ask for the dash cam. I'm going to try to stop. Can you uh, send a border patrol agent over here? We don't have to depend on the mere word of people anymore. We now have this documentary audiovisual evidence. Oh, they're going to take it, sir. They're taking the room Who said that? When the dash cam started coming in, I realized, wow, this is really a record of a deportation machine, of state troopers fishing for people on the highways and then turning them into federal immigration officials. We're going to go to a flea market, it's called the Pulga, and we're going to go meet a man who works there. He's been in the United States about 20 years, and he was stopped back in March while he was carrying a bunch of merchandise, and he spent 33 days in detention. And he's out now, he's fighting his deportation case. Morning. Texas Highway Patrol, the reason you're being stopped for speeding. ¿Por qué no tienes una licencia? No lo tengo, señor. ¿Por qué? No lo tengo. ¿Por qué? Usted está tratando inconscientemente o conscientemente, yo no sé, a ejercer su, su derecho de permanecer en silencio, ¿verdad? And the translation is you are trying consciously or unconsciously to remain, um, for your right to remain silent, and he didn't respect that. Apologies, as it's uh, this is reloading, and this again is from the Intercept, and this was posted on December tenth, and yeah, it's taking a while here to stop the buffering. So apologies for that. They also have the article as well, which is written by Debbie Nathan. <sighs> so folks can check out the article and the video at theintercept.com as well. And uh, let's see if we move it back a little bit if it starts up. Apologies for the technical delays here. And yeah, we're going to start this up again. So this might just take a while. And uh, let's see. And I'll uh, put on some music in the meantime. Apologies for the delay here. There's a lot of other articles here on The Intercept, including uh, they've, they've been doing a lot of stories on Standing Rock and the most recent one in their in their series 
of is a, an activist stands accused of firing a gun at Standing Rock. It belonged to her lover, an FBI informant. And that was written by Will Parrish and came out on December 11th. The case of Red Fawn Follis provides a window into federal law enforcement's infiltration and surveillance of the water protector movement. And let's see if we can get back to this. Actually, I'm going to start just reading the article. And then if the audio comes up again, great. And if not, um, we'll continue to read. And the video was provided by uh, Maisie Crow and Lauren Feeney. In Texas, state troopers have become frontline enforcers of federal immigration laws. In recent years, and especially since Donald Trump was elected president, the Texas Highway Patrol, part of the state's Department of Public Safety, or DPS, has developed a well-oiled deportation machine that scoops up drivers who've committed minor traffic infractions, then funnels them to the Border Patrol and sometimes Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Passengers and pedestrians who weren't even driving are also taken to custody. Caught in the Texas deportation pipeline, immigrants' lives are damaged or ruined, along with those of their children, many of whom were born and raised in the U.S. It's difficult to know exactly how often this is happening. DPS records are costly, hard to obtain, and difficult to interpret. Data on handovers was not collected until December 2015, and since then, the reporting of these incidents has been haphazard. In 2017, troopers were still were not consistently reporting all stops that resulted in handovers to the Border Patrol. Through public records requests, the ACLU of Texas determined that the agency's internal documentation did not record the handovers of several individuals who the organization's field organizers knew had been detained by the Highway Patrol, imprisoned, and in some cases, removed from the country. Subsequently, The Intercept, working with the ACLU of Texas, obtained several DPS dashcam videos that show immigrants being detained on the road for trivial violations and then carted away by the Border Patrol. The details of these deportations were gathered initially by DPS paperwork and dashcam videos obtained through open records requests. We then located the detainees and their families, including in Mexico. We made house visits and played the videotapes. As they watched, parents and children talked about how their lives were upended by Texas state troopers and current state and national immigration policy. One such arrest was Ruth Mariel Ramirez, 30, who has four children, three of whom were born in the U.S. Before Ruth's encounter with DPS a few months ago, she and her family were living comfortably in the El Paso area. Now, they're struggling in poverty-stricken, cartel violence-wrecked Juarez, Mexico. Ruth was raised just across the border in Juarez, in a violent, drug-ridden neighborhood with a drug-abusing father who eventually died of AIDS. She says that today most of her surviving childhood friends are drug traffickers, contract murderers for the cartels, or addicts. At age 13, Ruth gave birth to a son, Brian, and at age 15, she crossed into El Paso with Brian to live a safer life with an aunt and uncle. She became involved with a man with whom she had three more children, but the relationship soured and the couple split up. Ruth met Jaime Ortiz, a legal immigrant who has spent many years in the U.S. and has a well-paying job that requires he travel on weekdays. Jaime became a loving father figure to Ruth's kids while she became active in her church, studied to finish high school, and received her GED. 
The children le led typical Texas lives. 13-year-old Mariel Carolina, a middle school honor student, was already planning to attend an early college high school in El Paso to get a head start on her dream of becoming a pediatrician. Brian, 15, played football and lifted weights. From the time he was 12, he had been an avid composer and rapper. On a Sunday morning, early last March, Ruth went shopping and then bustled to prepare for an 11 a.m. Bible class. She intended to go home, wash and iron Jaime's clothes, and prepare food for his coming week's travel. She had an appointment the next day with a lawyer who was processing Brian's DACA application. She'd already paid hundreds of dollars in legal fees and had Brian's fingerprints taken. She'd also scheduled a visit to the high school to begin the registration process for Mariel Carolina. Church ended early Sunday afternoon, and Ruth and her daughter were driving home in the truck when they were pulled over by a pair of state troopers riding together in one vehicle. Hearing their siren, Ruth couldn't imagine what she'd done wrong. A couple of times in past years, she says, she'd been stopped by troopers for traffic infractions that was simply ticketed, and she'd promptly paid her fines. She was not perturbed when the troopers now told her she'd been stopped because her windows were tinted too dark, but she eventually realized that this stop wasn't really about windows. It was about her immigration status. By evening, she'd been sucked into the DPS Border Patrol deportation pipeline. The pipeline begins with a Texas Motor Vehicles Department regulation mandating that no one can get a driver's license without showing proof that they are in the U.S. legally. The rule went into effect in 2008, and the results were drastic. Many undocumented Texans are now forced to drive without a license, especially in areas with patchy to non-existent public transportation. In Texas, according to a Pew Research Center study, about 6% of the state's population is undocumented, one in every 18 people. But in border counties, where for generations people have moved back and forth between the two countries to be with family members, traditionally no one has paid much attention to immigra immigration status. In these communities, the number of undocumented people is substantially higher. In El Paso County, where Ruth and her family lived, about 8% of the population lack papers. Ruth's home was in San Elizario, a centuries-old former farming village about 20 miles downriver from El Paso. Sheriff's deputies in the area have for years been forbidden from asking people about their immigration status during these traffic stops. In the past year, state troopers have been a common sight in the densely populated eastern and central parts of Texas, but they've seen less but they've been seen less frequently on the more sparsely settled border with Mexico. Then the troopers came south and west to communities where seventy five to ninety eight percent of the population is Latino, mainly of Mexican descent. The troopers' surge into the border has its roots in the nine eleven terrorist attacks. The Federal Department of Homeland Security was formed in 2003, and in Texas, conservative politicians began spouting rhetoric about the dangers of narco-trafficking, human trafficking, and terrorism spilling across the U.S.-Mexico border. By 2006, Texas Governor Rick Perry was funneling federal money to sheriff's departments on the border and to the Department of Public Safety, the state agency that includes highway troopers and Texas Rangers. In 2008, the Texas legislature began allocating state money for border security. The budget that had the budget for that item then skyrocketed from $110 million 
to for the biennium 2008 to 2009 to 800 million dollars for 2018 and 2019 dps gets the bulk of the funding those funds have been spent on activities christened with militaristic names such as ranger recon missions and operation strong safety the ops and missions come with gunboats, helicopters, and drones. For several months in 2008, there is even a website run by the Texas Border Sheriff's Coalition in which civilian volunteers, in quotations, could view the output of cameras hidden on the Texas border, then phone in sightings of suspected undocumented crossers and criminals. About tw almost tw 25,000 people signed up to be virtual deputies. But by the time the program was quietly scrapped about a year later, the so-called deputies' work had led to only 11 arrests at the cost of $2 million. <sighs> Traffic citations and warnings in several border counties skyrocketed after the border security troopers arrived, and local political leaders complained that their constituents felt under, under siege. <sighs> In reality, rather than political hyperbole, the border has a low crime rate compared to the rest of the state. No terrorist has ever been known to cross the U.S.-Mexico border, and according to the Nonpartisan Legislative Budget Board, which advises the Texas legislature on the efficiency and effectiveness of state agencies, DPS's claims of crime-fighting effectiveness are not reliable because the agency does not provide quantitative measures of border security. Traffic citations and warnings in several border counties skyrocketed after the border security troops arrived. Troopers arrived, and pol local political leaders complained that their constituents felt under siege. One DPS official explained in an interview that troopers were making stops for petty infractions, such as improperly placed license plates, in order to check drivers and their passengers for serious crimes. Oh, in in order to yes in order to check drivers and their passengers for serious crimes these pretextual stops became a potent way of netting undocumented immigrants during that period stops for petty traffic infractions sometimes led to the trooper calling the border patrol but for the most part border patrol agents weren't interested in deporting harmless dps road product People who had been living in the U.S. for years with no criminal priors and U.S.-born kids were usually held for a few hours at a Border Patrol station, fingerprinted and sent home. Catch and release. The policy was popularly called under the Obama administration, immigrants as undersized fish. DPS troopers exercised discretion and often adopted the same laissez-faire practice, which is why Ruth used to only get tickets. In November 2016, just before the election, DPS Director Steve McCraw sent an email to troopers ending the de facto catch-and-release policy. When probable cause exists that someone illegally crossed the border, he wrote, we have an obligation to refer those incidents to the U.S. Border Patrol, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement. According to data DPS provided to Democratic Senator Jose Rodriguez in April, reported Border Patrol referrals averaged about 13 per month from December 2015 to October 2016. <sighs> Soon after McGraw's email went out, reported handover incidents spiked. According to the statistics provided to Rodriguez, 
There were 40 such incidents in December 2016, compared with 24 in December 2015. On the dash cam video memorializing Ruth Mariel Ramirez's stop for tinted windows, Trooper Corin Hutchison orders Ruth and Mariel Carolina to stand on the side of a dusty road near her church. He determines that Ruth has no Texas driver's license. She shows him one from Mexico, and Hutchison's partner, Patrick Brookshire, holds the paper to the sky. It's a fake, he says. Ruth had other forms of ID, including a Mexican voter card with her Texas address, but the troopers appear certain she is masquerading under a false name. After her daughter is sent home, Ruth sweats silently under the desert sun for almost an hour until a Border Patrol agent arrives, peers at the Mexican license, and shrugs. It's kind of wishy-washy, he says, of the, of the document, and of the trooper's insistence that Ruth's identity is fake. But he packs her into a Border Patrol vehicle anyway. The troopers speculate that Ruth is a major narco-trafficker, a high-roller, they snicker, attempting to pass for someone else, trying not to look too important by driving a beat-up truck. At the Border Patrol office, according to Ruth, the troopers sipped convenience store cappuccinos as she was identified. Immigration court records confirm as being exactly who she said she was, with no criminal record. She was deemed removable and sent to an immigration detention facility. Hutchison and Brookshire did not respond to requests for comment, and Texas DPS did not respond to a request to make them available for interviews. Ruth's stop and arrest followed a DPS detention three weeks earlier, 815 miles down the Rio Grande River from El Paso and Brownsville that netted a husband and wife who have four children who were born in the U.S. The DPS dash cam of this stop shows Trooper Myrna Garcia, Garcia um, pulling over Luis and Berta, who asked, who asked that pseudonyms be used to protect their family from retaliation. The incident occurred on another Sunday afternoon when the couple was late to church and rushing to get there. In the video, Garcia directs Luis to pull into a convenience store parking area, scolds him for speeding, and asks for his license. Luis doesn't have one, so Garcia begins questioning him and Berta about their immigration status. They say they've been living for a few years in Brownsville and have four kids born here. They're originally from Matamoros, the Mexican city just across the border, and used to possess crossing visas for shopping visits to Texas. Since moving to Brownsville, they haven't had the money to fix their permanent residency papers because they have a son who's ill. Gracia spots a Border Patrol agent coming out of the convenience store and beckons him over. She tells Luis and Berta that someone needs to come for their car and the couple's young son, who's in the front seat. Berta calls her 16-year-old son, Alan, who is, in, who is the captain of his high school soccer team. In minutes, Alan arrives in shorts and flip-flops, looking stricken. The Border Patrol is going to take your dad, Gracia tells the boy in English. He begins to weep. Son, don't cry, Berta says in Spanish. Then to the trooper, Ayudenos, help us. Yo, es, yo estoy haciendo mi trabajo, ma'am, Gracia replies. I'm doing my job. With no money for immigration attorneys, Luis and Berta were deported.
A few weeks after Luis and Berta were arrested, Paco and Carlos, who asked that their real names be withheld because of fears for their family's safety, were picked up in two separate incidents within two hours of each other at the same location near McAllen, Texas. Both were detained by a stern trooper named Cristobal Flores, who had been deployed along the border only a week earlier and had already caught four undocumented people, a feat he was clearly proud of. One woman he arrested said she'd moved to Texas after living for 17 years in Illinois. Another had been in Texas for 15 years. Yet another had been in the state for two decades. A few weeks later, Flores caught four more people in the same area, including a couple with two babies and another man who was in a vehicle with his father, wife, and young daughter, all U.S. citizens. Paco, a vintage toy vendor, was stopped for speeding on a weekday morning with his van full of merchandise he'd just bought wholesale. On the dash cam, one sees and hears Flores asking Paco to explain his lack of a Texas driver's license. Por qué, Flores asks, asks Paco, why? Paco attempts to exercise his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, but Flores is no civil libertarian. His question, harsh to begin with, ratchets up to a repetitive, menacing yell, Porqué, 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 porqué. As Paco stands mute and intimidated, Flores makes a sado voice, a sado voce phone call using code. BP unit over here, got a UDA, undocumented alien. Paco was sent to the Port Isabel Processing Center, a concertina wired institution miles from any city off potholed roads near the gulf of mexico the detainees there hail not just from mexico but from central america south america haiti and eritrea not long after paco arrived another fresh inmate arrived entered the cell carlos he'd been stopped by flores for speeding right after paco's arrest carlos's dash cam shows that flores treated him politely but deceitfully all right, um, so the article goes on for a while longer, and you can read it in full at The Intercept, theintercept.com. And again, you can, uh, this is written by Debbie Nathan, and it came out on December 10th. I just have to say, fuck fascists, and fuck people for following orders. Uh, I personally don't believe in borders. I don't believe in nations. And until everyone else can also start looking in the world that way, uh, I just have a lot of frustration and anger and I recognize that this it's not necessarily I don't really have the words for this just a lot of anger and frustration so we'll be back next week on Monday stay tuned because next is a joke workshop I also host a show here Fridays on Mutiny Radio called The Weekly Review, so folks can check that out uh, Fridays from noon to 2 p.m. And uh, I guess that'll be it. So please do stay tuned. I'll get some music playing for everyone momentarily. And uh, yeah, thanks again so much for listening. I'm a little bit, my brain is a little bit fried um, after that and just witnessing all the... Ugh, just so much to witness right now. So please do uh, have conversations with people, spread the word about what's happening, and uh, do the best you can do to survive Today, this, you will under- uh, this world that we're in. And
And with that, I'm just going to wait to finish so we don't play any ads here on the show. Uh, Mutiny Radio is a community-run station, so if you'd like to support us, please do check out mutinyradio.fm. And stay tuned, and we'll be back uh, next week.
Outside laughing his ass off. Uh, I'm not. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2pm. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2pm. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to 
www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skin Care. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base ten times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you properly feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. 
it's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar. Thanks, friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy. Nice is that this will actually record during the what's going on right now. Okay, ready when you are. Hello, Mutineers. Uh, this is David Stolowitz. Uh, I have a, a public service announcement. We are trying to locate our friend Eric James Lupus. He is a San Francisco comedian, a former Mutiny Radio DJ. He had a show last year called This Human Experience. He's been missing for over a week, and his family and friends are very worried about him. Uh, he is homeless. His car was recently impounded, and he does have a heroin problem. He was last seen in the Mission District on uh, Monday, September 24th. He was picked up by the police and has not been seen since then. If you have any information about his whereabouts or where he might be, you can call his brother John at area code 813-244-9564, or you can contact me, David Stolowitz, or Omar Qureshi uh, via Facebook. Uh, my local number is area code 408-823-1052. Thank you so much for your help. A worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. <laughs> For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bare exoskeleton Contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com. Timstesseract.com. So you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. But that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, 6 to 8 on Joke Workshop with four-minute sets and four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive by host, Pam Benjamin. 
pump those dick jokes every Thursday, 7 to 9, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. You want more open mics? Fridays, 6 to 8. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. After work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Um, it's two o'clock on a Wednesday. It's time for some Call Me Tim. I have very special guest today, Jeannie Cartier. Hello. Yay. Yay. To talk about all the things she believes in and what's going on <laughs> with life and the world and art and all that kind of stuff. Uh, usually on Some Call Me Tim, I tell people, well, why do you call it Some Call Me Tim? Uh, and it's about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which you guessed, yeah. which is great. Amazing. And it's the search for random knowledge that doesn't really exist. They're searching for the Holy Grail, just like here on this show. We like to talk to people about what they believe in. Because we know that to be a moral and ethical person in today's society, you don't necessarily have to ascribe to religion. But some do, and that's okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually we turn around and ask you to look deep into the eyes of sparkled Jesus, and I ask you, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, he was a guy. Like, he existed. It's- but, like, I don't know. He said some things that were, like, okay, I, okay, I guess. But I wouldn't, like yeah stake my whole life on believing in him like i don't really understand like you know what's maybe you can answer this question for me pam because i've never understood this in christianity there's this thing that they always say which is jesus died for your sins yeah what does that mean so how does a person die for somebody else's sins i don't get it for god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but will have eternal life and the whole concept is that god imbued Mary uh, the virgin who was not married yet to Mm -hmm. Joseph but an angel came to her and said you're going to have God's baby and kind of touched her put it in her womb and then she had this baby who was God's baby and supposedly grew up and was blameless never committed a sin never did anything wrong was a perfect human being because he was the son of God Mm. and then he was sacrificed 
in his perfection at 33 years to save us for all of our sins because supposedly but like how though how did he do how did he save us because obviously people still sin because of the concept of sacrifice so if we look at any uh, religion well most of them there's always a concept of sacrifice right so even okay. if we go back to like mythological stuff yeah and yeah. they burn a goat and then the right the so it's like the equivalent of sacrificing a goat to odin so that your crops will Right. Grow. Okay. Except that so that you can live eternally in heaven, Jesus died for your sins because supposedly God knew every mistake or everything you were ever going to do wrong. He already knew. It just seems like a lot of like explaining around things to me. Like, I don't know. Right. I'm an atheist, like full disclosure. Like, I don't believe in any of it. Right. But like, I have spent time with it. Like when I was a kid, my best friend who I knew since I was two years old like his family was super Catholic so I like went to church a lot with him and kind of just sat in on it so I've like been exposed to a fair amount of it and like that was the thing that always struck me is it just seems a lot like a lot of like explaining around things like it's like okay we know we can't really dispute that these things exist so we're just gonna like construct these like complicated explanations around them to kind of justify like why we think all of these I don't know it's Why just like seems like a weird people yeah yeah well yeah and then there's the fact that like so many like we're supposed to be like a Christian nation but we don't right. take care of poor people right or old people yeah or old people old and old old poor people it's like it's like once you fuck up at capitalism all you get is this lousy t-shirt but you don't even yeah. get a lousy t-shirt yeah. <laughs> like I failed at capitalism and all I got was this lousy t-shirt now just even walking here today I saw so many people who were older than me who looked like they failed at capitalism and now what do they do what do you do like i've failed and i even have all the degrees and stuff and i still can't figure it out like how does it work yeah i don't know i don't know it's yeah it's a tough one (laughs) because like i just did so like as you know i'm an artist i do like i do performance i do shows and even when this last show that we did, which was a huge success, like we sold out three out of four shows. Awesome. It was like amazing, went super well, but like we still didn't make, like we made some money, but like we still didn't make like that much money. Like considering right. how many hours we spent just like laboring over it, planning, having meetings, rehearsals, rehearsals yeah. like it probably Marketing. averaged out to like a dollar an hour. Like right, I was going to say like three eleven. Like yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. below minimum wage for exactly. like how much. And I'm just like, how do people make money at things like this? Like, right. I don't understand. And then it's like, I used to work this corporate job and all these people, I mean, I was probably like the lowest level employee. So I was like not making that much, but like a lot of people around me were probably making six figures and for doing like bullshit like right right. passing around pieces of paper yeah like it was like an investment firm so it's like not even like the stock market is like totally a thing that you have to believe in too like talking about things you have to believe in yeah but it's just like white rich people gambling basically and it's similarly when i was at christmas i met some of family and they were talking about bitcoin and how they've like bitcoin is the new thing that they believe in and i'm like okay so i don't even believe in paper money it's like little pieces of paper that float through my hands that i don't understand yeah and bank accounts with numbers and you it's all digital money and now there's a money that isn't even money it's a different kind of money but it's like a stock market and yeah it's it's a whole new level of like fake economy like make-believe economy like already the economy is kind of make-believe right but like yeah bitcoin is just this whole new level of it and i'm like 
how I'm not putting my money anywhere near Bitcoin. Like, to be honest, like it just seems like complete bullshit to me. Like somebody's just going to end up with a bunch of money and everybody else is going to get screwed is what exactly. it sounds like to me is going to happen. It's I don't I don't Cause, Yeah. And because it, it's yeah, people it's have not to believe real. In it. Yeah. How do you like when I see a piece of art like Thomas Bridgman's art, he's taking it off the walls and they're real pieces of art and mm-hmm. they exist and you see them and you say that is a pictorial representation of work. Yeah. Or if you even art that's ephemeral, like your shows and yeah. you create you're talking about big concepts, you create a show, you you know, inform the audience, they're entertained, they consume that entertainment and it's gone, but it's still a half life of a memory. It's still something yeah, that existed. It's a, it's a nice hopefully a nice memory that they keep with them. I mean yeah, like a lot of people have, they'll come up to me years after a show and be like, oh, I remember that you did that. and Right, the and circus great. stuff or all yeah, the... Yeah, and especially when you do socially conscious theater where it's really trying to make a point and like telling people something, it is right. valuable. But, and yet I get paid like a couple hundred dollars for like so many hours of work. Right. I I used to do theater. I used to own a theater company in San Diego and I was like, oh, I never lost money on a show and I could actually pay all my people. But Mm -hmm. it was like the first show I did, it was 50 bucks. So people did four weeks of rehearsal, four nights a week, and then they ran, you know, five shows a week for three weeks and they made 50 bucks. And I was all like, look at this. I paid everybody. And that is a victory when you can even pay somebody for that much for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, but it's insane. Like why are artists expected to do their work for free? Yeah. Yeah. There's no other profession like that. And yeah, but it's just, it just goes to show like where our values are are in the society you know it's like we we would rather pay people who like move a bunch of numbers around all day in the stock market six figures right. <laughs> and it's like all make-believe <laughs> and and yet that's somehow worthwhile labor which i don't agree with and so yeah. i'm like a straight yeah. marxist where i feel like all work should be equitably yeah valued yeah because yeah there's dudes that are digging ditches and moving dirt and and running electrical lines and building things and they're making you know yeah and that has an impact on your body too i mean to be fair like sitting at a desk does have an impact too like i'm i'm an ergonomist and i i look at people who've been sitting at desks for like 20 years and slumping over and it's like it is pretty horrible actually what it does to your body too but but it's not like laboring in the street shoveling sure Cement, or being yeah. a farmer or yeah yeah like that there's an expiration date of like how long you can do that for sure right. and that should be compensated and then those people's medical bills should be paid those people should have proper access to medical care i don't understand why we can't all have access to medical care why yeah. we've decided that doctors have smarty pants knowledge that can only be accessed through great amounts of money yeah Yeah, no, I have had a whole struggle with that for sure. Because, I mean, I'm an acrobat. I get tons of injuries all the time. It's just kind of part of what it, you know, it's just part of the job. Bend your body in half. Yeah, yeah. And I've been doing it for 23 years. Like, it's been a long time that I've been doing this to my body. And, you know, naturally you're going to have a lot of aches and pains. Like, what I would love, if we had the perfect healthcare system, what I would love is just to be able to go to a weekly appointment where I could talk talk to a physical therapist and have some massage work done and have, you know, yeah. do the exercises I need to do and 
all that, that would be like the perfect situation. And I actually finally kind of found that with my Obamacare plan. Like I figured out right. there's this one physical therapist that I could go to for like $10 an appointment, which is nothing. And so I went, uh, they were starting to get like really weirded out because I went for like eight months. <laughs> That's great though. It's, but it's, it's body upkeep. The thing is that yeah. we need to change people's way that they think about physicality in their bodies and if you're yeah. doing all preemptive work which is great because if yeah. you're keeping your body in tune like a car if you wouldn't just like leave your car in a garage yeah. and take it out once a year you got to turn it yeah. on and move it around and see what's going on yeah totally and you know what's really interesting to bring this back around to belief too is that i was just thinking about this quote the other day i took this class with um peter sellers who's like the theater yeah. director um at ucla and he said something that like always stuck with me which was um an athlete's belief system is contained within their whole body huh. which i just think is like i'm still not totally sure what it means but it's so interesting to me to think about it like that stephen curry is my spirit animal absolutely <laughs> like yeah and if, but if you look at um i mean so you can i just can relate it to basketball if you look at dennis rodman and you look at his the way he was with the bulls and his dumb body and what he pierced himself and all his stuff mm-hmm. and his and the way he acted on the court and the way that he that his whole belief system was in his physicality mm-hmm. absolutely yeah it's totally true for like physical per- performers of any kind really athletes you're i've been thinking about this a lot because i'm actually writing a new novel that's about oh, an athlete um, and just about how yeah ath- like most people think with their mind is sort of contained in their head and athletes really your mind is contained in your whole body and you're so in tune with every little thing about it um so i'm at the point now having done this for so long where i can i can just sense little things are wrong you know sure. something's wrong i totally know i just feel it i'm like in tune with it um so yeah it's really interesting i don't know i just think about that quote a lot you're your belief system contained in your body that that to me is like a more is a better way to look at a belief system than just believing what's written in some book or that somebody tells you sure you know like you can trust your own body in a way that you can't necessarily trust even any other people but in in a lot of religions you're taught not to trust your own body yeah so if you look at like catholicism and someone's a priest and they have to have a a celibacy you know a law of celibacy your entire body goes against that yeah so your brain is like i am this and i'm trying to be this and i'm trying and it's just like constantly negating the physicality and the humanness of yourself and and it's like you're told be fruitful and multiply but like don't have sex is unclean clean like i don't know it's just a really weird mixed message right well there's there's a lot i mean the bible makes me crazy because it is the most anti-feminist text it really in yeah. like the universe yeah. and yet we yeah use it as like a nation to subscribe our values yeah even though we're not we're supposed to have a separation of church and state but suddenly everybody's yeah. inside our uteruses because there's some kind of moralistic question about women having the ability to have sex without having babies i mean yeah. it, i think a lot of it is yeah. just control yeah totally to- i mean handmaid's tale basically sums right. it up like it's just yeah if you have control over women's bodies then you can control other aspects of society it yeah. completely it completely makes sense because yeah it's the it's the it's the womb of life you know it's where life originates right and they want us some, for some reason to create life but then they don't want to give yeah. us access to health care 
Yeah. For, you know. Yeah, or even acknowledge that women need a little more health care than sure. men and really, you know, should be. If we're going to have the babies, we should really take care of our bodies, especially. Right, <laughs> right. Know, like, right. Feeding ourselves the right way. and Yeah, uh, yeah. Have access to education about how to do that and all of those things. Yeah, it just, I don't know. I'm flabbergasted as to what's happening right now. Yeah, it's just a new war. horror every day. <laughs> the new war on women. I'm like, it's an old war. It's been going <laughs> for many years. <laughs> yeah, nothing Now it's just everybody knows about it or something. Oh, look at that. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, I mean, it's just the ultimate just fuck you to women. Like, we're going to elect this guy who just doesn't respect them at all. Well, and who is completely unqualified for the well, job. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, there's that. Yeah. Say what you want about Hillary, but she was the motherfucking she was Secretary of State. Qualified. I mean, <laughs> she, she definitely was. knew how government works. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just it just shows that the American people we don't really be, we don't believe in yeah. government anymore. We just believe in TV or what they're showing us and Yeah. I mean, Oh, if you would have said Oprah for president, people would have been like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, people are talking Michelle about electing Obama. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Right. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'd rather have him. But at the same time, like, maybe let's not get into just nominating every actor that we right. like. That we like. Exactly. <laughs> like, that WWE. could go wrong. <laughs> yeah. That could go terribly wrong. I, yeah. It's, well, it's all, if it's gone so terribly wrong, like, how, how do we? I, I, Your mom nailed it. Next question. Hello. Hey, can I get just a little more in the mic? A little. Just, uh, oh my, that feels nice, actually. That's nice. That's good. So, uh, you may have been misled. Uh, but let's do this. Tonight, we're going to perform, I believe, if I have the numbers right, it's for about 5,500 people. Um, most of whom respect you more than the people in this room. So... Just kind of feel that, feel that. Uh, whatever I'm supposed to do here, probably it's not gonna happen exactly how uh, it was planned, but I'm glad that we're here. Uh, I was thinking about arson. I don't know if anybody has any good arson tips. We could talk about it later. Uh, I feel like we're gonna have to burn the house down. You, like, you want it to be empty, that's like, that's like rule one, arson. And I think it is, man. You're not even. This isn't. I'm doing Hackomania on Tuesday. That's going to be a lot of driving. So that's <laughs> cool. Drew Harmon told me he thinks I'm too good for that gig. So I was like, book me. <laughs> Four months ago, I was like, book me on your show. Um. This is really weird because I haven't been to an open mic in a while. But then I decided not to make this one an open mic. So now I feel comfortable. It's nice. <laughs> oh. All right. I got a puppy. There's this fucking arrogant bastard named Blue at my house right now. And he, like, gets in my bed and shit. And I feel it's very prison movie kind of. Like, especially because he established dominance on, like, the top stair. So he has, he's actually above my head and shit. That's not actually Hunter's dog. I think Hunter's going to come here. Hunter's dog likes to sit up there and just show me his balls, which I think is a really confident move. It's good. No, it's like he, ha he made his point known. It's like you have to get the fuck down. 
Um, I don't know if this this thing is actually, what are we, is it happening? And Oh my God, so exciting. We're so close to being on air. Are you guys feeling tingly and shit? Oh my God. Um, this is the illest sound check I've done today. No question. Uh, I invited some of my favorite comedians to be here and they said uh, they're booked in other places. So anyone play the piano? Should be a good night. I kind of want to do just like a little, you know, a little to Cal. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? You know, to Cal? Come on. You're not one of like them children. To Cal? What about you? You know what the, all right. You know what? This is strictly for my Negroes now. <laughs> fuck y'all, dude. You know what? They, you know what they said about diversity? That includes white people, so fuck diversity. All right, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Oh, it's nice. It's good. Um, I'm about to have time in my life again. 